It's a privilege to be here. Uh, before I offer a prayer to start the message, I just want to give a personal testimony of thanks to God. Fifty years ago today, my parents were married. And I'm grateful for the parents that I was blessed with. They raised me to love the Lord and to have a high regard for the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And I was blessed to be born into a Seventh-day Adventist home. My dad passed away 19 years ago, so we're waiting for the special resurrection for him. But yeah, when I got up today, I was like, wow, my parents got married 50 years ago today. And God is good. I'm thankful for how he has led in my life, and he's leading each one of our lives today. I'm going to ask the Lord to be with us, and we'll get right into our message. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to worship you today. And I just pray, Lord, that you would send a message from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary that would be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that the message that is given today would be what you would have me to say. So I just pray that you would touch my lips and touch my heart and that each of us here would be able to hear the moving of the Holy Spirit as I speak today. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Today we're looking at a parable of Jesus, and the title for this sermon is Without a Wedding Garment. And we're picking it up in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And this is a parable that Jesus tells shortly before he gets into his end-time prophetic messages, but this parable certainly relates to that as well. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So just so we understand who we're talking about here, God is describing his kingdom which is for his people. And in order to have a kingdom, you must have a king. And the king in this parable is the father, and the son is Jesus Christ. And the marriage that is being made here describes the marriage supper of the lamb, which will take place in heaven for all of the redeemed. That's a wedding feast that we all want to attend as guests. Verse 3 goes on to say, And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Now it takes a little, a little bit of arrogance to be invited by a king. But this isn't just any king, this is the king of kings. To be invited by a king to the greatest wedding that will ever take place and to not come. And not only do they not come, they come so, or they, they do not come out of choice. They intentionally do not come. Now in this parable, the servants are the prophets of the Lord who bring the gospel message to the nation of Israel. So Jesus is giving a parable to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, just before he dies. And he describes how his father 
is making a marriage for the son, which is Jesus, and the father has done everything that he could do. And down through time, you can look at the prophets that have been sent to Israel. God initially raises up Moses, one of the great prophets. And then you look through time and you see the prophets that were raised up to the nation of Israel, including the prophet Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and many of the minor prophets and other prophets who were raised up to invite the nation of Israel to this wedding. And by the time Jesus is here on this earth and he's about to die, he makes this pronouncement of the nation of Israel. They would not come. But there's yet another invitation. God doesn't even give up on them yet. And in verse 4, it says again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden or those who are invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Now this second invitation, we are told by Sister White in the book Christ Object Lessons, refers to the invitation of the apostles that are then given to the Jews after Jesus dies. So a second invitation is given. Even after Jesus dies, now once Jesus dies, that guarantees that there really will be a wedding in heaven. And the king wants to make sure that those who put his son to death still have an opportunity to respond to the message of salvation. And he gives them another opportunity. And you can see that he has left nothing undone to make this dinner, this feast, this wedding feast, he has left nothing undone to make it the best thing possible. And in verse 5 it says, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And you know, we look at the Jewish people and we say, what is wrong with you? How many prophets would God send? I mean, if I had been a Jew, and by the time Jesus came, after I read all of the other prophetic messages, I certainly would have responded to Jesus if I had been alive. But why then did most of the Jewish people not respond? I mean, they killed the prophets. I mean, they sawed Isaiah in half. They put Jeremiah in a pit, and they would have left him for dead. Some of them would have if they could have. I mean, when the prophets sent messages, they were not received with grace and kindness by God's people. And when Jesus showed up, they didn't receive his message. They put him to death. And then we see after Jesus died, they make light of the message and they went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And so the cares of life became more important to them. And you may say, those Jews are something else. How could you reject such a message? And yet I look at Seventh-day Adventists today and I wonder, You know, we live in the South where farming is still an industry and merchandise is as well. And it doesn't have to be farming or merchandise. There's plenty of other industries that we as Seventh-day Adventists have involved ourselves in so that we invest more time, energy, and focus into the things of this world than to the gospel message of invitation where the Lord is sending a prophet in this day to give us a clear message of the coming of Jesus, and yet we make light of it like the Jews did of old. 
And the parable goes on to say, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. We think of the stoning of Stephen. That was the close of probation for the Jewish nation. We think of how James the apostle was put to death. And Peter would have been too if an angel hadn't delivered him from prison. Now we see the response of the king in verse 7. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth or enraged, angry. You know, God gets angry too. God did everything he could to save the Jewish people. And he had right to be angry or to have wrath, or as the King James says, to say he was wroth, because he sent every prophet that he could have sent to give the message of salvation. And finally he sends his son Jesus and they put him to death. And he even sends messengers after that, and they still reject the invitation to the wedding feast. And the king was wroth. At the end of the world, we see in Revelation 16, the wrath of God. Now, what does God do to the Jewish nation? It says, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And lest you don't understand what this verse means, God sent his armies, that's the Roman army with the general Titus, and in 70 AD, he destroyed those murderers, the Jewish nation. That's what the Bible says about those people. And he burned up their city. That's the city Jerusalem. Now, God loved the Jews, but their measure of iniquity had reached its limit. And they are described as murderers, and their city was burned up. Now, again, we say that Jewish nation, what a people. I mean, they were murmuring and complaining in the wilderness before they even got to the promised land. And then they get to the promised land and they've had all these deliverances. And instead of following God, they worship idols. And when the prophets come, they put the prophets to death. And then they go into captivity and they finally come back from Babylon. And when Jesus comes, they put him to death and he sends further messengers and they stone those prophets. Yeah, they had it coming to them. They deserved it. And yet, when I look two chapters later in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uses the destruction of Jerusalem as an illustration of what it will be like just before he comes back. And the way the Jewish people rejected the message, the gospel message of the prophets is the way the world will reject the gospel message at the end of the world. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just that the world will reject the gospel message. It's that many in the church will reject the gospel message as well. And the parable is not done. Because Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to sit back those of you Christians who read this parable later on and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like those Jews. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. But he goes on in verse 8 and says, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden or invited were not worthy. 
Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid or invite to the marriage. So God says, okay, fine, if the Jewish people, my chosen people that I selected to be my very own, if they're not going to accept this message, go everywhere else throughout the world and invite them to the to the marriage, to the feast. And so the gospel goes to the world. And as Galatians 3.29 says, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, I'm thankful that you don't have to be a Jew to be worthy of the gospel message. Now, I know some Jews who make wonderful Seventh-day Adventist Christians, so they're still worthy of being invited if they accept Jesus. But it's not just for them. It's for everybody. And in verse 10 goes on to say, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now you may be wondering, how could bad and good come to this wedding feast? Well, here's what we're going to find out. Everybody who comes to the wedding feast makes a profession of accepting the gospel invitation. But not everybody who makes a profession of accepting the gospel invitation is changed by the power of the gospel. So the invitation here, what Jesus is saying in the parable is the gospel will then go to the rest of the world and there will be many who respond to the gospel invitation, but even then only some will be changed into good Christians. So they found as many as they could, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now Jesus is speaking in symbolic or metaphorical language because the wedding feast is going to take place in heaven. You can study this in Revelation chapter 19. It's described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And scripture says, blessed is he who is at this marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's taking place in heaven, but the king comes in to see the guests, and you can clearly see when the king comes in to look at the guests, he is doing an evaluation. We call this an investigation. This is a description of the investigative judgment. And so here we see Jesus describing the investigative judgment in Scripture. And the investigative judgment, we understand as Seventh-day Adventists, began for the dead in 1844. All who have ever professed the name of Christ have been judged from 1844 until now. And, and then we're told soon, some no, or none know how soon, I shouldn't say some, wipe that out of the recording. Soon none know how soon the judgment of the living will begin. So there's this investigation that takes place. So you say you've responded to the gospel invitation. Well, let's see if you've responded to the gospel invitation. And there's a condition to responding to the gospel invitation that shows you have actually been changed by the power of the gospel. And verse 11, we see, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless, meaning there's no excuse. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
Now, it's interesting, in the parable, only one person is without the wedding garment. Everybody else has it on. But Jesus closes by saying, many are called, but few are chosen, indicating that many will hear this gospel invitation, but very few will choose to put the wedding garment on. And what we're going to be talking about in the rest of the sermon is what it means to wear the wedding garment. Because there are many in the world and many in the church who profess to enjoy hearing the gospel invitation, the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has died for us on Calvary, that he is our savior from our sins, and that through faith in him we can receive his righteousness. And I think we all understand to have the wedding garment means to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So what is it about this wedding garment that has many who are called, but few who are chosen. Why is it that this man came to the wedding feast without the wedding garment, the righteousness of Christ? That's what we're going to look at. Now we're going to look at some quotes from Christ's object lessons, and I would encourage you, go back and read the whole chapter for which I've entitled the sermon, Without a Wedding Garment, in Christ's Object Lessons. And on page 309, we see, it says, When the king came into view the guest, the real character of all was revealed. You see, having the garment on is a revelation of who your character is, of what your character is. For every guest at the feast there had been provided a wedding garment. This garment was a gift from the king. You realize that we cannot earn that garment? We cannot work hard enough to pay off the debt that all of us owe in order to be able to wear that garment. We understand that, as the scripture says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus is the only one who is righteous, but he offers a free gift to all who would like to have his righteousness. By wearing it, the garment, the guests showed their respect for the giver of the feast. Now, how many of you have ever showed up to an event and you're not wearing the right attire? Now, initially you're going to think, oh yeah, one time I came to church and I was underdressed. And that, that can happen. As God's people, though, we want to show friendliness and grace to someone who's here for the first time who may not know what we know about showing up to church. But, you know, I can think of a time where I was speaking for church somewhere, and it was at a venue. It was like an ASI meeting somewhere, and it was at a venue by the beach. And I didn't bring a change of clothes, and the venue was right by the beach. And you walk out to the beach, and I'm wearing this suit, and I'm like, I don't fit here. This is weird. (laughs) I mean, you you don't typically go to the beach wearing a suit. In fact, if you look at these weddings where people get married at the beach, a lot of the guys aren't wearing suits. And again, I'm not here to make a judgment one way or the other. I'm just saying, typically speaking, you don't see people wearing a suit at the beach. And in this story, this man shows up to the wedding feast, metaphorically in heaven, and he's not wearing the wedding garment. He's wearing his own garment. And he's not properly dressed for the occasion. He has not shown respect for the giver of the feast. He is clothed in common citizen dress, 
And Elamai says he had refused to make the preparation required by the king. The garment provided for him at great cost, he disdained to wear. Now, the great cost is the death of Jesus. And when we refuse to put on this garment, we are saying, I do not have respect for the sacrifice and the price that has been paid for me to wear this wedding garment. It's an insult to God to treat him in such a way. By the king's examination, this is Christ's object lessons 3.10, by the king's examination of the guests at the feast is represented a work of judgment. The guests at the gospel feast are those who profess to serve God, those whose names are written in the book of life. So when it says good and bad show up, these are not just anybody, it's not the people out in the world who openly and defiantly reject God. These are the people who say, I like the idea of this God gospel invitation that if I accept Jesus, I can live in heaven eternally. Now, here's the amazing contrast in this parable. The Jews, when they received the invitation, it says they would not come. They're saying, okay, God, you have a gospel message that promises heaven, but that gospel message means that we will not rule over this earth as the kings of this earth, where you will raise up us as the great kingdom on earth, where the Messiah will reign and we will be the Lord's. We don't want a kingdom of grace that changes our lives into the likeness of Jesus, into the Messiah, who is loving and kind and good. No, we want to be like the kingdoms around us, We just want to be on top. So we're not coming to this feast. That's not what we're looking for. And so that's their problem. But the Christian church and the Seventh-day Adventist church, we receive this gospel invitation. And there's a different deception that is going out there, and that is you can attend the wedding feast even if your character doesn't match the garment of that which you profess to be wearing. And in a sense, it ends up being the same because the Jews didn't want transformation. And those who reject wearing the wedding garment are saying, we can't be changed either. And if you say you can't be changed, you won't be wearing the garment. Two paragraphs later in Christ's Object Lesson 310, it says, By the wedding garment, in the parable, is represented the pure, spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. Now, humanly speaking, it's easy to say, how can I ever possess the pure, spotless character of Jesus? But listen, righteousness is not by works, correct? Righteousness is by what? By faith. The question is, do you believe, do you have faith to believe in the power of God to give you his pure, spotless character? Because that will be the distinguishing mark in the investigative judgment. Who has faith to believe that the righteous garment of Jesus Christ will not simply cover you, but be a demonstration of what God has done in you? 
By the wedding garment and the parable is represented the pure spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. Now remember, we're talking about being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when you look at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride who shows up has, is clothed with white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. And I have news for you, Christ's bride is not going to be clothed in a spotty garment. Christ's bride is going to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is a pure and spotless character. And this paragraph ends by saying, It is the righteousness of Christ, his own unblemished character, that through faith is imparted to all who receive him as their personal savior. Now it's interesting. We look at the Jewish people and we say, what's wrong with them? They didn't want this garment. They didn't want to attend this feast. They didn't want to be changed. They didn't want to get out of their conniving attitudes where they were striving to be the greatest. And, you know, that spirit was seen in the disciples. And yet we look at the church today and we say, you know, thank God that we've accepted Jesus and we know that he's the Messiah and he's our Savior. And yet when I come to the last day church in the book of Revelation in the Laodicean message, and Jesus describes his church as the Laodicean church, and Laodicea means the judged people, how are they clothed? Jesus says, you're naked. And so Jesus gives a parable saying, there's one man who showed up without a wedding garment, but then he gives a warning to the Laodicean church, and he's like, I have a warning for you, because I'm concerned that if you stay the way you are, you're going to end up like that man in the parable I talked about in Matthew chapter 22. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the thing that's bad for you is that you don't even know it. And so as Laodiceans, we're walking around and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like the Jews of old. I know that Jesus died on the cross. I know that he died for my sins. And I've accepted that sacrifice. And, you know, I realize that... um, you know, I'm not perfect, and I still sin, and I'm still sinning, and so therefore, but I look around at everybody else in the church, and they're all doing it, and my pastor, I'm not talking about your pastor, but my pastor says that it's okay to keep sinning until Jesus comes, and so this is just the way it's going to be until Jesus comes back. God, I thank you that we're not like the Jews, and God has a message for us saying, you better watch out, because you say you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now let's take it a little bit deeper for us as Seventh-day Adventists who profess present truth. We can be, God, I thank you that I'm not like those Adventists that have drums on the stage. God, I thank you that I don't eat the food that they eat. God, I thank you. I don't watch the things that they watch. And you know what? I understand, Lord, that I have some attitude problems. I mean, I haven't forgiven somebody who got on my nerves 10 years ago at church. There's somebody in my family that I can't stand. 
speak to you right now because they hurt me five years ago and we're not on speaking terms but God I thank you I'm not like the Jews who put Christ on the cross and I'm not like the Adamists who have drums on the stage and I'm not like the people who still eat meat God I thank you I'm not like that and you're going to overlook my bad attitude because I can give you a study on the 2300 days and Daniel 11 and Revelation 17 and nobody can hold court with me on that and you're not going to care about my bad attitude and the judgment and God's going to say wait a minute you're not wearing the garment and somehow we think that God's going to overlook an unconverted character simply because we have knowledge without a heart change and he looks at the Laodicean church and you say, oh, I'm like this. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, if you really want to be rich, you need to buy gold tried in the fire. And 1 Peter 1 verse 7 says, to have faith means that you've had gold that's been tried in the fire. So Laodicea says, we're rich and increased with goods. We have faith. And God says, no, you don't have faith and you don't have righteousness. And so we have this challenge. And, you know, people say, oh, well, it's not, and, and, and look, Ellen White makes this clear. It's not the occasional good deed or misdeed, but it's the general trend of the life. And some of us use that quote to say, well, my general trend is I only lose my temper two or three times a day. That's better than the 15 times that the guy down the street does. I've got news for you. That's not a good trend. Now, what does it mean to wear this garment. This is a powerful statement from Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. This robe, woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Now, Ellen White is specifically speaking of this garment in the parable of Matthew 22. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. Notice, it's not just impute to us. Most of the Christian world says, oh, righteousness is imputed to us, even though we continue to live a life of sin. But this character Christ offers to impart to us, and I'm skipping down later into the paragraph, and it says, by his perfect obedience, he, Christ, has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. Now listen, there are many in the church who paint this picture in Zechariah 3 where Joshua the high priest is clothed with filthy garments and then we see that he is clothed with, with the garment of Christ's righteousness and you have these artist renditions where the robe of Christ's righteousness is placed over the filthy rags but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the filthy garments are taken away first and then the true garment of righteousness is placed upon Joshua the high priest. And in this statement, in order to have the garment of Christ's righteousness, there is a condition, and the condition is submitting ourselves to Christ. And when we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. 
The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. You know, Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. As scripture says that every thought is brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. And this is the great challenge in the Christian world and even in the Adventist church. And this is why the Jews rejected the invitation to the wedding feast. Because in order to receive the wedding garment, which would be to receive the character of Christ, it means total surrender to the Lord. And the Jews did not want to surrender their idea of worldly greatness and of being the great kings of the earth, the kingdom of the earth, where the Messiah reigns, and they are the lords over the world who serve the Messiah, and they put the Romans in submission and all of the other kingdoms of the earth into submission so that they are the great people of the earth. That's why they rejected the invitation. But we reject this invitation for similar selfish reasons. Because there is this element within us that does not want to surrender to the Lord completely. We're okay with a modified and improved version that, as Ellen White refers to, is what we call respectable conventionality. We show up to work. We do our job. We pay the bills. We provide for our family. We have a nice family. We come to church. But there's certain things that we reserve the right to maintain that carnal side of ourselves when we need it at a moment's notice. Okay, that person just cut me off in the lane. I'm going to give him a real loud honk and, and ride his bumper to let him know that what he did was not okay. You just said something to me, I'm going to talk back to you. And if you gave me attitude, I'll give you attitude to let you know you never speak to me like that again. And in Luke 19, Jesus gives this parable where he says that his servants hated him and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's one thing to accept Jesus as Savior, but it's something entirely different to allow him to be the Lord of our lives. And the condition of receiving the wedding garment is to accept him as Savior and to accept him as Lord. So that, yes, we receive forgiveness for our sins of the past by faith, and as by faith we receive forgiveness, we also then believe, and we believe in his power, that he will empower us to live a life of obedience. And this is one of the great challenges for the Christian church today. Going on in Christ's Object Lessons 3.15, the life of Christ on earth was a perfect expression of God's law. And when those who claim to be children of God become Christ-like in character, they will be obedient to God's commandments. Then the Lord can trust them to be a number who shall compose the family of heaven. Now think about this. We understand that one-third of the angels fell in heaven. And at one point, nearly half were on Lucifer's side or had sympathy with him. Now let me tell you something. There are a lot of fallen angels running around who are demons who used to be friends with the unfallen host in heaven. And the angels in heaven have some questions about the redeemed that are going to be coming into the kingdom. And the last thing they ever want to go through again is another rebellion. 
There's nothing worse than having uh, an insurrection and a rebel within your own church or within your own family and sides start to develop and I'm on this side and you're on that side and who's right and who's wrong and we got to go to war and, and people are saying things. And you know, I, I, one time I was at a place where someone would come to me and say, you know, people are really concerned about what you're doing here. And then I'd go to t talk to these people and they're like, oh, well, no, we didn't say that. He came to us and said, what Norman is doing is bad, don't you think? And then he'd come to me and make it sound like that what I was doing was bad, but he was the one that was trying to plant the seeds in their mind. That kind of thing still keeps going on. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen to me. It could happen here or any other church. And the angels in heaven, they're not interested in people who live that way on earth while professing to follow Christ come back to heaven because they had Lucifer in heaven who claimed to follow Christ. He was the covering cherub, and he just said he was trying to improve the government of heaven. And they want to know that the people who come into the heavenly kingdom have been changed by the grace of Jesus and aren't just simply walking around professing to follow Christ while following the devil instead. Now, the next paragraph of Christ's object lessons, 315.2 says, The man who came to the feast without a wedding garment represents the condition of many in our world today. They profess to be Christians and lay claim to the blessings and privileges of the gospel, yet they feel no need of a transformation of character. Now, if you've reached a place in your Christian walk where you're not concerned about being transformed by the grace of Jesus, I would urge you and warn you to wake up before it's too late. They have never felt true repentance for sin. They do not realize their need of Christ or exercise faith in him. They have not overcome their hereditary or cultivated tendencies to wrongdoing. Yet they think they are good enough in themselves and they rest upon their own merits instead of trusting in Christ. Hearers of the word, they come to the banquet, but they have not put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. Listen, friends. If you're not converted... If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus today and every day so that his grace is transforming your heart, so that the fruit of the Spirit is being revealed in your life, so that people see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And by the way, if you look at Galatians 5.22, it does not say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. This is not a buffet. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's an all-encompassing package. If Jesus isn't transforming you into that character, and you don't feel a need, you may just be like that man who showed up to the wedding feast, and you may be like someone who says, but Lord, Lord, didn't you see what I did for you? I mean, I preached sermons in your name. I could give Bible studies. I mean, I ate the right food. I wore the right clothes. And, and the Lord is going to say, but wait a minute, you weren't a nice person. You weren't transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And again, it's not the occasional good deed or misdeed, but it's the general trend of your life. And for some of us, the trend of our life is not a good trend, but we make excuses for it. The next paragraph says, many who call themselves Christians are mere human moralists. 
You know, there's a lot of nice people that I've met that aren't even Christian. Like when I went through my residency training at Loma Linda, I met some really nice people that are not Christian. And they did, they did the very best that they could to take care of people who were sick. But that's not enough. Being a mere human moralist is not evidence of being a follower of Jesus. And the next page says, All these expect to be saved by Christ's death while they refuse to live his self-sacrificing life. When we submit ourselves to Christ, we are willing to live a self-sacrificing life. And that may mean that you don't live life here on this earth. In fact, it will mean. It doesn't just mean you It may mean. It, it does mean and it will mean that you will not live this life on this earth as you would humanly choose to live it. There are things in your life that the Lord is going to ask you to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. So that the clothes that you wear and the car that you drive and the job that you do and the career that you call to and the person that you marry. And listen, let me tell you something. If you follow to the person that God leads you to, you'll be way happier than if you humanly pick for yourself. I'll tell you that right now. But all of those choices that you make, humanly, you would go in a different direction to serve your self-interest. But when you give your life to Christ and you see what he has done for us, it's a shame for us to even say, but God, you would ask me to give this up when we see what God has given up for us. He has done everything possible to make it so that we can be ready to be at that wedding feast, so that we can be provided with a wedding garment. And the condition for receiving the gift of the wedding garment is total surrender to the Lord. And yet many of us say, but that would mean then that I would make a few less dollars here on this earth and wouldn't have quite as shiny of a car or as fancy of a house or as well of a known name in this earth. And that's just asking a lot, Lord. And you're willing to... to sur- to sacrifice all of eternity for maybe at best 90 years of selfishness. And for many, it's less than that. Do we really love Jesus? Because when we love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind, we will be willing to live self-sacrificing lives. You know... Ten months ago, I had a bad accident. And without going into all of the details, I slipped down 15 steps in my house into the basement. And it wasn't just some little minor accident. I crushed the humerus into several spots. I had to be flown by helicopter from Lawrenceburg, Tennessee to to Vanderbilt. And the bigger problem was that it crushed the radial nerve. And I happened to be a neurologist, so I knew when I hit the ground, I knew the bone was broken. I mean, you don't have to know a whole lot to know that the arm was way off and the bone was sticking out. It was an ugly sight. Um, But the thing I was concerned about was, did it get the nerve? And I tried to extend my wrist, and I couldn't. So I self-diagnosed myself immediately. I happened to be a neurologist, and I happened to do a one-year fellowship in peripheral nerves, so I was kind of supposed to know that. And here I am 10 months later, and I still can't extend my wrist. 
Now, I've even had surgery at Emory in Atlanta. They took a nerve from my leg and put it in my arm, and I've maybe seen a very slight twinge of improvement. But it's not the way I would have chosen for things to go. And... Look, I realize that people who don't live for the Lord also have bad accidents and have bad outcomes. But as, as a child of the Lord, you know, it's, it's tempting to ask God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Why, if I'm trying to be faithful to you, did this thing happen? Well, first of all, just point number one, you know, God asks us to live a self-sacrificing life. So we're not guaranteed that everything's going to go perfectly the rest of our lives. And secondly, if all it took to live a life of bliss without trial was to become a faithful Seventh-day Adventist Christian, you know how many people would become baptized just so that they could get away from the challenges? And so just because we're faithful Seventh-day Adventists doesn't mean that bad things are not going to happen to us. In fact, sometimes I hear people say, if you just have your mind right with the Lord, you will not get sick. And I'm like, you know what? We live in an evil world. So let's stop, stop judging people who get sick. Because I know good health reformers who have gotten sick anyway. But when we choose to follow the Lord, we don't have a guarantee that everything is going to go well. But when we live a life of service to the Lord, where we sacrifice our lives to the Lord, that when bad things happen, we can say for the glory of God. And look, humanly speaking, I don't want to say this. Well, let me make this clear. Humanly speaking, I want to get my hand back completely. But for the glory of God, if he chooses to not heal me completely this side of heaven... If that leads somebody to be in the kingdom who wouldn't otherwise have been there, when I, can get to, when I get to heaven and even now I can say, for God's glory and for his good, I can say, praise the Lord. Amen. Humanly speaking, I don't feel like saying that. But when I surrender my life to the Lord, I can say that by faith. Amen. Are we ready and willing to live self-sacrificing lives? How do we handle trials and difficulties are we like a true christian or do we collapse like the worldlings around us and say well if god existed he wouldn't have allowed me to suffer this way you know my dad was a faithful seventh-day Adventist, and he died from multiple sclerosis and you could say well if god was good he wouldn't have allowed my dad to have multiple sclerosis and die from it 19 years ago but my dad understood and by faith knew what he was looking for. And I understand this as well. You know, I never dreamed 19 years ago when my dad died that years later I would also develop a neurologic disability. The difference between me and him is that he had a condition that he knew would eventually lead to his death. For me, it's, it may not get better, but it's not going to get worse. And even then, we can start to compare and say, oh, but look how bad this is, and woe is me, and this is so terrible. And we can start having pity parties. And God wants us to be faithful, to put on that wedding garment. Let's look at a few other statements. This is Christ's Object Lessons 3.16. The righteousness of Christ will not cover one cherished sin. That's not the gospel I hear from much of the Christian world. 
The righteousness of Christ will not cover one cherished sin. A man may be a lawbreaker in heart, yet if he commits no outward act of transgression, he may be regarded by the world as possessing great integrity. But God's law looks into the secrets of the heart. Every act is judged by the motives that prompts it. You know, you can come to church and look like you have it all together, and you're thinking something really bad about somebody else here in the room, or somebody else at another church, or somebody somewhere else, and God will judge that. And the next paragraph says, Christ gave all heaven from which we may draw strength and efficiency that we be not repulsed or overcome by our great adversary. But the love of God does not lead him to excuse sin. Aren't you thankful for that? He did not excuse it in Satan. He did not excuse it in Adam or in Cain. Nor will he excuse it in any of the children of men, any other of the children of men. He will not connive at our sins or overlooks our def- overlook our defects of character. He expects us to overcome in his name. Did you hear that? He expects us to overcome in his name because he knows what his power is like and he knows what his power can do in our lives. You know, there's some of us today who make excuses, but God does not make excuses for the sins in our lives. We're like, oh, but everybody else does this. And you know, there are some of us who take comfort in being grumpy. You want to be grumpy the rest of your life? You know that the Lord expects us to overcome that in his name? There are other things that we take comfort in. It's like when things get really bad, God's going to understand when I turn away from him to take comfort in my cherished sin. But God's not going to excuse that because he knows that he can deliver us from that. In the parable, when the king inquired, how did you come in not having a wedding garment? The man was speechless. So it will be in the great judgment day. Men may now excuse their defects of character, but in that day they will offer no excuse. Now, I'm going to skip ahead to page 319. It says, there will be no future probation in which to prepare for eternity. It is in this life that we are to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness. This is our only opportunity to form characters for the home which Christ has made ready for those who obey his commandments. And I want to challenge you. You may take comfort in your cherished sin, but I'm telling you, when you learn by faith to hang on to Christ so that your heart is united with his heart, your mind is one with his mind, and your thoughts are brought into captivity to him so that you live his life, you're going to be so much happier. You're going to have love and joy and peace where there has been hatred, anger, and strife. You're going to be taking joy in the Lord knowing that He is leading in your life and you're not trying to save yourself anymore. You're allowing the Lord to work out His salvation through you. And I want to take you to Revelation 17. And as you turn there, I'm going to read the statement from Christ Object Lessons, page 319. The days of probation are fast closing. The end is near. To us the warning is given. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. Beware lest it find you unready. Take heed lest you be found at the king's feast without a wedding garment. And then it goes on to say, In such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now remember at the end of the parable, it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. 
shows in, in Revelation chapter 17, the beast, Babylon, at the end of the world, makes war with the Lamb. Notice Revelation 17, 14, it says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So at the end of time, when the dragon, through the beast power, makes war with the Lamb, he makes war with the Lamb through the person of the saints of the Lamb who are called and chosen and faithful. These are the saints who have been called by the gospel invitation and they have been chosen to wear the wedding garment and they have put it on and have proved themselves to be faithful. They are the people in Revelation 14, 12 of whom scripture says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so the dragon makes war against these people by making a death decree to destroy them in the battle of Armageddon. But Jesus gives a warning in Revelation 16, verse 15. In the sixth plague, after probation is closed, he gives this warning and he says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now this is a warning especially to the Laodicean church because he has already warned the Laodicean church, you say you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, you think you are, but you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And what Jesus is saying in that warning in the sixth plague, he's saying, you better be paying attention when you read this warning. Because after probation closes... You might have been able to hide your nakedness before probation closes. But after probation closes and the plagues begin to fall, if you don't have that wedding garment on, the shame of your nakedness will be seen by all the world. And the world's going to say, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're receiving the mark of the beast, but you said that you believed in the Sabbath message, and you got the mark of the beast too? What happened to you? And Jesus is saying, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And I can't think of anything worse than to be a Seventh-day Adventist who has professed faith in the third angel's message, yet when the final crisis comes, you go along to save your life. Oh, I better do the Sunday thing or I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. And you receive the mark in your hand. And then when the plagues begin to fall, it will be revealed that you received the mark of the beast. And I can't think of anything worse than to receive the mark of the beast when you knew the truth. And then you think you'll show up to the wedding feast with your own garments in the common attire saying, but Lord, Lord, I mean, I knew the mark of the beast issue. I knew the Sabbath message. But I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I kind of got used to choosing the easy popular side. And so when the great final test came, it was easy for me to go along because my heart hadn't been changed. But I just thought you would overlook my unconverted heart and you would understand why I provided for my family. And I didn't think I would receive the plagues after the Mark of the Beast crisis happened. And the reason that will happen is because as Great Controversy 608 says, they have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth. Listen, friends, this parable is a warning from Jesus to us. 
Yes, it's a warning to everybody else, but it's a warning to us as Seventh-day Adventists who think that we can know about the truth, we can know about Jesus, we can know that he's died for us, and yet we refuse to accept the wedding garment, which is an invitation to receive his spotless character in our heart so that we become a different person, so that our family members will actually enjoy having us in their home. And so that we will actually have the power of God to be witnesses for him to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Because I'm telling you, when we as a church finally put on this wedding garment where God writes his law into our hearts and minds, God will then be able to pour out his spirit in the power of the latter rain where an angel comes down from heaven having great power and the earth is illuminated with its glory and we will cry with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich with the abundance of her delicacies. And then the message goes on to say, and I heard another voice out of heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that you receive not of her plagues or be not partakers of her plagues. And and then it closes in verse five by saying, for her sins have reached unto heaven. We're going to have a Sunday Law update this afternoon. But Babylon's sins reach heaven at the Sunday Law. And the reason why God has not allowed the Sunday Law to happen yet, and why the louder rain has not been poured out yet, is because when the earth is illuminated with with God's glory, it's his character, which is his righteousness. You know what would happen if the Holy Spirit was poured out now? We would go out to give the loud cry with the spirit of Babylon that we're condemning. And God needs a people who are wearing the garment, who have his righteousness, his pure spotless character, so that the world will see the contrast. So they not only hear the three angels' messages, they see a distinction, a contrast between Babylon, whose sins have reached into heaven, and the remnant church who are like Jesus in character and are a righteousness of Christ to the last day people of this world. So I want to make a challenge to you as we wrap this up. Jesus is coming as a thief. It is time to be watching and to keeping our garments. You know what? It's time to stop watching Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC to see how you can get talking points for your favorite political party so that you hope that your party wins the midterm election. Did you realize that both of those parties are corrupt? And they're all going to receive the mark of the beast? And yet we're fighting harder for those parties than we are for the kingdom of God. And we partake in its spirit. And then we wonder why we fight like Democrats and Republicans at our church board meetings. It's because that's what we're beholding. And Jesus is saying, blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments. If you want to have the garment of Christ's righteousness, by beholding we become changed. How about if we start beholding Christ in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary rather than politicians fighting on the cable news channels? 
And we think we're going to be ready to receive the seal of, the, of God when we're starting to imbibe the character of the beast power and of the powers that are underneath the beast power. And we fight like the beast power. And we act like the beast power. And we cheer for the beast power. And then we think when the mark of the beast comes, we'll slide around it and receive the seal of God. Listen. If we're going to receive that wedding garment, we must be beholding Jesus, not the powers of Satan on earth. And we wonder why Jesus hasn't come yet. It's not because of the Pope. It's not because of Biden. It's not because of Trump. It's not because of Pelosi or whoever. It's because of us. Do you really want the wedding garment? Or when Jesus comes today and he offers that wedding garment, which is his pure, spotless character of being like him, to live his life, we're like, but wait a minute, if I took that garment, then I couldn't fight for the Democrats or the Republicans in the upcoming election. Or I couldn't have my attitude towards that worker at, at my job. Or I couldn't reserve the right to be grumpy when my family gets on my nerves. And God is saying, behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. May the grace of God touch each of our hearts so that we receive that garment today. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.